0: Hello, everyone, watching and listening. Good morning from Sweden this time, and welcome back to the Free Radical Podcast, episode number nine. And This is your host, Swami Padmanabhan here today, very happy to be in the company of a very special guest, Franciscan nun, scientist, theologian, and many other things we will surely discover today, Ilya Delio. Thank you so much, Ilya, for joining us.
1: Thank you, Swami. It's great to be here.
0: So I'll share a few words of Elia's bio before we dive in into today's topic. <clears throat> Ilya Delio, OSF, is a Franciscan sister of Washington, D.C., and holds the Josephine C. Connolly Chair in Christian Theology at Villanova University. She's the author of over 23 books, including The Hours of the Universe, Reflections of God on God, Science and the Human Journey, which won a 2022 Gold Naturalist Book Award, Making All Things New, Catholicity, Cosmology, and Consciousness, finalist for the 2019 Michael Ramsey Prize, and The Unbearable Wholeness of Being, God, Evolution, and the Power of Love, for which she won the 2014 Silver Nautilus Book Award and a 2014 Catholic Press Association Book Award in Faith and Science. She is a founder of the Center for Christ Genesis, an online educational resource for promoting the vision of Taylor de Chardin and more broadly the integration of science and religion in the 21st century. So I'll be sharing just for those of you who are connected the link to her website christogenesis.org for those who are only listening. i um, <clears throat> personally in my particular case I got to know from about Ilya uh, I will say a few months ago relatively recently by reading some of the books of Father Richard Roard, where he mentions her in different occasions. And when I met Father Richard in New Mexico last February, also we were talking about her contribution. And then I read her book, The Unbearable Wholeness of Being. And actually, indeed, I'm sharing some parts of that book in, in, in my book, Radical Personalism. And then more specifically, I read uh, The Emergent Christ, which basically blew my mind, <laughs> to be honest. Uh, and especially in connection to how Ilya is describing there the idea of an ever-evolving God and therefore an ever-evolving pattern in reality itself, which I found so connected to to my own Godia tradition. So it is then that I invited Ilya to to my podcast, but then she very quickly defeated me, so to say, by inviting me first to her podcast, which we recorded a few weeks ago, and that will be publicly shared on September 11th, and then on September 18th, the second part. So for those who also would like to tune in and know about her podcast, the name of the podcast is Hunger for Wholeness. There you have the name, and it can be found on Spotify and other platforms. So since this free radical podcast considerably revolves around the contents of my recent book on radical personalism, I always love to begin our episodes by asking every guest to share a few words of what the term radical personalism means to them. So I don't know if, if you would like to share a few words, Iliadelio, what the, the idea of the term radical personalism means to you as, as you hear it, basically.
1: Yeah, I I, I like the term very much. Um, I've always liked the, the adjective radical hmm. uh, coming to the root of what we are. And I think... Um, as I looked at your work, I think, and very, very similar to my own work. What is the root? What is the ground? What what is it that we're called into being? Um, I think personhood is not a given. It's something that's a dynamic um, engagement. And I think that radical personalism is dynamic engagement of our own becoming. Uh, Mm -hmm. We're always becoming person. We're always becoming um, ever more relational and coming into a greater consciousness of our own being um, in relation to other, uh, to the the larger um, beingness of life, and and uh, come ever coming to that root of what we are, which is an infinite root in my in my view, mm-hmm. um, the mystery mm-hmm. of human person.
0: Hmm. Thank you so much. I love it, I especially love the idea of becoming, you know, because so much, so many times we think of ourselves as being, but we do not attach it. To that the potential of constant becoming. So thank you so much for blessing me with a further layer of purpose into this idea of radical person listen. So today's topic of, for the podcast our episode today will be <laughs> new language for the future uh, and we chose this title with Elias as, as you will soon corroborate Ilias specializes in, in this theme so to say by being herself I will say very dynamic Scientist, a very broad minded theologian, but also because I also we, we chose this topic because I personally feel we find ourselves in a side gaze where many things or many ways in which we used to do everything, religion included, uh, are being called upon revision, mm. upgrade, or as I like to call, like the GPS says, recalculate. Mm. So, <laughs> so, in this connection, I'd like to share a brief section from my book as usual. Uh, on which we will be revolving around. And this section is found in page 85 for those who have the printed edition and it's called Radical phraseology, And it says like this, our Godia glossary needs to be revised, upgraded and recognized. Not only do we need new words for some of our ancient terms, but we also need to understand how some of those notions coexist and apply in our lives today, if at all. We need to unlearn, relearn, and repurpose our old lingo in the context of modernity. We call this radical phraseology. So this above section is the one who inspired the title for today's episode, A New Language for the Future. So Ilya, I don't know if you have any thoughts that you would like to share to officially start our session.
1: Right. Thanks, Swami. I, I uh, fully agree with you that language is that which expresses our understanding of things, the basic contents of our existence. And I am concerned sometimes that we use language that has within it meaning from another age, from a past age. Uh, even if we use the term human person, for example, I think we, we bring into that term a whole host of understanding that we grew up with from our family, from what our religions taught us. Um, for example, from the Catholic uh, perspective, you know, we were taught that God created the human person, male and female, with body and soul. And so many people think, I have a body and I have a soul. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so not paying attention, say, to what science is telling us about the human person how we might emerge you know, in this um, broad stream of biological life, I think mm. that language can it can uh, deter us from an opening up uh, of understanding in a much broader way. And I think language has two ways of going. It can, it can stifle us and it can liberate us. And therefore, it is important that our language uh, reflects the reality as we understand or are aware of that reality. Hmm. Uh, w- words, words make a difference.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally agree. I especially resonate with what you mentioned about how language can, to begin with, how language is crafting basically our experience of reality. It's sometimes we underestimate the importance of language and how, we, how, the, how it defines how we conceive everything, basically. Yeah. And and also not only because words are not so not only crucial in our social engagements or or conversations with others, but in how we in the inner dialogue we are conducting with ourselves. So if we don't have the proper language to talk to our own selves, what are we telling to ourselves? What are we hearing ourselves? And and as you mentioned, in terms of an ever-evolving and ever unfolding, any spiritual tradition also I think is of course, of an ever-unfolding f- nature. So we need a corresponding language that is also ever-unfolding. Yes.
1: Um, I, mm. I also have been uh, influenced by the work of Karen Barad, uh, a physicist who wrote the book Meeting, Meeting the Universe Halfway. And mm. uh, she builds a whole philosophy based on Niels Bohr's insights in quantum physics. But why I'm telling you this is because she spends a whole chapter talking about the way especially Western modernity, use language to carve up the world. And so she says, you know, after Descartes, um, language became mental constructs that we begin to categorize things. And what her whole idea is that um, we place so much weight on words to the neglect of experience. Mm. Um, and therefore she's saying that in a, in a world that's entangled where our root reality is deep relationality, Mm. we have to be attentive or present to that deep relationality, which is an experience that goes much more deeply than language alone. And in in her view, like if we stay at language, we wind up in little boxes of, you know, what people are and what religions are and, you know, what truth is and who has the truth. and, And we start arguing and, you know, getting into conflict because we're no longer attentive or disconnected from the deeper experience hmm. of belonging together, you know, hmm. with reality.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like I remember I put in my book that we, we need a journey language. No, we need to speak in terms of we need, we need a language that is this depicting the experiential landscape that we are going through and not just merely, as you mentioned, yeah. conflict constructs and, and boxes and labels that we know quickly where which box to go and put everyone in their corresponding yeah box according to our bias and and even in in terms of religion as you mentioned with language we can both uh, can con- stifle or liberate and I, I remember i put in my work in my book we can be rooted in tradition or also we can be rotten in tradition to make a play of words (laughs) Mm. in in, in the name of what tradition says, what scripture says, what the words of the book says, and we can end up justifying just about anything.
1: I think, you know, one of the examples um, of a a great figure, certainly from the Christian tradition, that speaks to this question of language is Francis of Assisi, a great medieval saint. And one of his famous sayings is, preach by your example but use words when necessary. Um, And, you know, I think we've kind of modified that language, but that saying, but it was a great way of saying, you know, your way of being in the world, your actions, your whole going about the world is much more expressive of what you're thinking and, you know, and who you are than any language you can use. Hmm. And um, one time he went into a group of poor clear nuns and he was going to give them a sermon. And he walked into the room and he took a bowl of ashes. He sat in the middle of the, of the circle. He took a bowl of ashes and put it on his head and he sat there in silence. That was the sermon. <laughs> and, and I wonder sometimes, you know, that we have so lost the capacity of our own beingness to express the truth of reality that we keep using a lot of words to explain things. We're such a wordy culture, quite honest, a wordy mm-hmm. world. Uh, it's not just any culture. I mean, with the internet now and so much information, just just all over the place, people are bombarded by words and, and ideas, you know, and we're lost in it. We've, we're, we're just kind of drowning in words, you know, and and therefore uh, I think we're losing that, that depth of meaning that comes from, uh, just comes from our own beingness, you know, in the way Francis himself, uh, you know, used words sparingly, uh, like the desert fathers and mothers, you know, again, in the Christian tradition, uh, the, famous, the famous anecdote of the young monk who goes to the elder monk and he says, you know, father, what must I do to become a saint, to become holy?
2: Hmm. And
1: the old man just looks at him and he says, mm, you know, not much. And he said, come back in three years. Hmm. So the the monk, the young monk goes away and he says, you know, I fast, I pray, uh, I do good works. He comes back after three years and he says to the older monk, you know, uh, Abba, what must I do to become holy, to become a saint? And the man looks at him and he says, well, come back in two more years. Uh, And again, time, right? this time, what does time do for us? So eventually the young monk goes away and comes back. And then on the third try, he says, Abba, you know, I have fasted. I have prayed. I have reflected on my life. I've read the scriptures. What more must I do to become holy? And the old man, the old monk stands up and he stretches out his arms and he says, why not be turned into fire? Hmm. And that, I think, is so powerful in its message. Hmm. Um, We use words to talk about a lot of things, but sometimes those words can deflect us from the real power of spiritual transformation. We have to be changed in the core of our being, and that's the greatest message we can give to the world.
0: I totally agree, and I cannot avoid thinking about so many parallels in our own tradition regarding all the different things you're mentioning, which of course is further confirming about the universality of, of these principles. Like, for example, when you mentioned Saint Francis saying, again, about the most powerful preaching is your own example, and, and in Sanskrit we have this term prachar, which has to do with speaking to others about the new, the good news, as you all say, the gospel. No. <laughs> sharing and prachar means the word and achar means one's behavior so mm. uh, but the word achar is included in prachar mm. um, and pra means a very special type of so prachar which is generally translated as preaching actually means pra achar a very special type of behavior
2: ah.
0: and that will be the best type of conveying the message and i like to say if you take out the the, the word achar from prachar you only have pr which is public relationships (laughs) instead of of sharing revelation. Yes. Um, Yeah. And also in our tradition, we have Sri Chaitanya, which we consider he's a manifestation of the divine. And it is mentioned that he converted the greatest logician and scholar in India, uh, not by delivering any discourse, but by sitting in front of him in silence for seven days. So he, uh, he, he he was silent, but the example that was exuding from his pores, the inner world of realization was spoke by itself, and the greatest logician was fully converted because he was into that fire that you speak of. Which interestingly, in our tradition, it is described that the very first word that mm. sound, sounded in the that was heard in the universe was tapas, and tapas literally means fire. Fire. So that's for us the 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 the, 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 the landmark, the trademark of this whole creation is. Fire, enter into it, basically. I love
1: that. Yeah, fire. That, that's, uh, fire is a great symbol in the Christian tradition as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, Bonaventure spoke about the burning love of the crucified, mm-hmm. a burning love, a love that's a, a fire transforms. Yeah, right? Fire can destroy as well, though, you know. So it's the kind of fire that might destroy all that is not most deeply personal, and transform uh-huh. us into that, you know, the beauty of, of that radical personalism. So I think, you know, sometimes that uh, we fear fire, quite honestly. We, yeah. we fear uh, what it means to be deeply and radically transformed, to become mm-hmm. that radical person that, you know, you so beautifully um, describe. Um, and we want it, it's, it. We desire it and we fear it at the same time.
0: And it's paradoxical, as you mentioned, because all of us look are crazy mad after love, but love is the most powerful and most transforming thing of all. So we could say that's the thing we are most terrified about as well, even if we don't, don't know that consciously. Yes. <laughs> we are uh, running after that, but we are running away from that simultaneously.
1: <laughs> I agree. I think we want, we, we so desire love, but we, we fear the the cost of love. In other words, love mm-hmm. at, at its height um, it's totally self-involving right it's completely chaotic. you have to enter yourself completely into another for the sake of the other yeah. and we we like the lower stages of love where kind of you know we feel good about you know being mm-hmm. loved and, and loving and and that's not a bad thing it's certainly the start but real love is is real fire quite honestly yeah yeah,
0: you know, yeah. i like fun. yeah as i like to say real love is not the dopamine peak but <laughs> but actually self-forgetfulness and allowing yourself to be transformed by by your openness to the other person. And again, most of us do not want to change, which sounds so basic, like spiritual life is about change. But many of us even start with that spirit in our honeymoon period. But eventually we start to establish ourselves, status quo and certain perks and comfort zone and transformation. Absolutely. transformation stop being a priority, so to say.
1: Yes. In fact, I was just talking about this yesterday to my students because the French philosopher Henri Bergson spoke about an Elan vital, there's a vital spirit within us. And mm. he says, but what humans do is they resist change. Um, mm. We're always looking in the rear view mirror. You know, we're <laughs> always looking like one step behind. And there's something about, like you said, we like, um, we like the way things are, even though we're not completely happy with them. But mm. the fact of radical change, radically frightens us. And so we'd rather like settle for mediocrity
2: mm-hmm. than
1: really aim for radical um, transformation because we don't like the unknown of what that could mean for us. Exactly. So that's where I think, you know, the divine element, you know, the divine power within us, um, we need to trust that you know we are loved, we are already loved and held mm. in that love, and mm. you know, open. You know we're invited into the radicality of love itself. Mm. You know, and I often think, what would our world look like if we could begin to really um, open ourselves up to trust that radical love um, already within us and among mm. us?
0: Mm. And beautiful. In connection to that, Ilya, I'm thinking. Also, to connect with an important topic, we, I like to touch. We are talking about transformation, and transformation means change. And I, we were talking in the beginning about the need for sometimes changing, not necessarily the words that we may be using. Sometimes we may need that, but also changing how we are conceiving, transforming our conception of the terms we may be accustomed to use. And in that connection, I I wanted to, to invoke the idea of evolution since According not only to you and through Christianity, but even to our to my tradition, everything is in a constant state of unfolding because that's the very nature of love and love is the the ultimate arbiter of reality, so to say. So I know that you are very much involved into the conception of evolution and, and not only evolution of species, according to Darwinian theory, but as a root of it, how evolution is taking place to begin with in God's heart, so to say, And and that ever unfolding is reflected in all the other dimensions. Mm -hmm. So so I'd like to invite you to share a few words according to.
1: Yes, I think evolution is is our reality beginning with God. I think, first of all, as you say, Swami, you know, where there is love, there's Mm -hmm. openness to relationality. And where there's relationship, there will always be change, right? So anything that's alive changes. Anything that's dead doesn't change. That's basically how it goes. You know, mm-hmm. a leaf that is dead um, withers. You know, on the ground, uh, a leaf that's part of a tree that's alive um, will flourish and blossom, eventually fall and die, and then be reborn. And so, I I do think change is the name of the game. As someone said, the only constant mm. change. You know, mm. the only thing that doesn't change is change itself. Mm. Mm. And we have, uh, you know, I look at. The world in which we've constructed, and while it's rapidly changing, and we have a very hard time with it, we've never lived. We've never learned how to live in a world of flow. So I think another word for change is flow. I -hmm. think nature itself, nature is a flow of life um, through the cycles of the seasons, through the birth and and death of you know natural um, elements, but you know. I think in terms of God, and it's there's so many layers to this conversation, by the way. But in terms of God, I think um, God is constantly inviting us into more into the moreness of life. God is constantly, you know, um, in our hearts and um, seeking to become more unified in our lives, to so that we may become godly. And therefore, God is part of the change. And I think actually, our own changing hopefully, is an evolution or an unfolding toward a higher consciousness of a wholeness, a reality um, of love and light that uh, we have the capacity for. And so, um, you know, Meister Eckhart, the Dominican mi- mystic, said mm-hmm. God is the newest thing there is, hmm. the youngest thing. He said mm-hmm. if we are united with God, we become new again. Uh, mm. And I think that quote of Eckhart is so wonderful. You know, God is the newest thing there is, the mm.
0: Yeah. In, in our tradition, in, indeed, we have a term for God that is Navayovanam, which means ever new, ever fresh, ever young. Oh,
1: I love that. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's great. Because actually one of my terms for God is ever newness and love.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: That's
1: yeah. That's my other name for God. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and, and the actual reason we gave for him to be ever new and ever fresh is because he's ever in love, as you mentioned. He's, yes. ever, he's wow. loving love himself, herself, ever in love. Uh, and and yes. as I mentioned in the podcast we made, one name for the absolute, for the divine is Brahman. And the root for the word Brahman comes from Brimhati, which means to, to expand and to grow. Mm-hmm. So you, you ultimately the expansion and the growth as you nicely pointed has to do with the dynamics of love which is a constant unfolding and a constant unpredictability in, in the context of love we, we yes. also have that idea in our tradition that love moves like a, in a crooked way like a snake implying it doesn't move in a straight line that is predictable Yes, but it's uh, unpredictable in the context of love of course
1: yes absolutely Swami and I think you know, two things I'm thinking here. One is Teilhard Desjardins' notion that the core energy of the universe, he said, is love. Mm-hmm. That the core, love is irrepressible, irresistible, and um, incomprehensible. We don't really know what love is, but we do know we experience its attractive power, its unitive power, its transcendent power. To love is to become something more in relation to another and by doing so to become more myself in that whole, in that ever um, emerging wholeness and so love um, love is tr- a tremendous energy of our cosmic life second is love involves suffering no mm. love, no suffering no love and i think sometimes we want sort of a bloodless love you know we want a pain free love we want the analgesic love you know, oh. we want love like aspirin. You know, I don't want to, I want the high of love, but I don't want to have to feel the pain of love. Hmm. But that's the whole point. The beauty of love in its ever evolving purity involves the letting go of those parts of our lives that um, get in the way of love uh, or that block that love. Hmm. Uh, and this is a mystery, I think, of the human person, that we have the capacity to give ourselves to, you know, out of love for another person, even if we call it sacrifice or martyrdom or something like that, you know, in its physical form. But Mm. spiritually, you know, it's, again, I go back to Francis of Assisi, you know, in his idea, he wanted to live um, not, not material poverty per se, but living without possessing. He called it living sine proprio. Mm. And you know, all the stuff that we possess, uh, we can possess um, uh, our judgments, you know, our biases, what someone wrote about us on Facebook, you know, or wh- how someone critiqued us, or what someone said about us, or some relationship that happened 20 years ago, we possess these things, hmm. and we hold on to them, we grasp them. And then we start like building, you know, scenarios around them. And, and therefore, we fail to love. We've, we've never let um, we've never learned to let go, even though we may have been hurt in a relationship. And how do we, in a sense, accept what happened as the past and open ourselves up to the future? Mm. Um, and, and sometimes those past hurts that we hold on to and go over and over and over in our minds block the vitality of love, which our world is, you know, and we ourselves are hungering for.
0: Yeah, Totally. Yeah, that reminded me when you mentioned the idea of, of suffering as part of love. Richard Rohr, Father Richard, he will say that there are two ways to open our heart. and One is great love, another one is great suffering. And of course, he then, he's quick to mention that one is not separate from the other as well. Because as you mentioned, in, in the more you love, the more you suffer, but the more you suffer, in love. no. So I don't want people to get afraid of we are promoting some sort of I, I, or masochism or something <laughs> because generally many people address the approach of spirituality wanting to stop suffering, as you mentioned. And, and there is a place for that even in our tradition in the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna is saying, there are different people who approach me, God is saying, and one of them is the afflicted one. Hmm. But eventually the approach has to mature to the point of Accepting another form of affliction, which is the one who, who is part of love, which is there is sweetness in in, in pain. There is the potential of of, of finding sweetness in, yeah. in the pain of of, of love, basically. As yes. and I think everyone can have an immediate ex- experience of that with compassion. You identify with someone else's suffering. You make that yours. You suffer, but it's a suffering that not does not contract our consciousness, but right. expanding it. So. I, I will say even if you don't, if some people will't la- like to think or speak in terms of divine love, even in terms of secular compassion, so to say we can have a, an, a very clear experience of how there is sweetness and expansion. yes, uh, in suffering basically. Yeah
1: and, and you know just putting this a heart full of mercy, a heart that's open and can mm-hmm. embrace another in their own weakness and their fragilities. You know, sometimes we don't have to. We don't have to do a lot. It's just being present to another. Mm-hmm. That's part of radical personalism, mm-hmm. yeah. person. yeah. uh, I think. person. I think we become overly pragmatic that we have to solve all the problems of the age.
2: Hmm. But,
1: uh, I don't think we ever solve problems. Problems are really about the way relationships um, work or they don't work. Uh, and I think compassion is a beautiful term for that expansiveness of heart you know, that you have room in your heart to allow your neighbor in or your family member, whoever it is who's who's suffering. Um, Mm -hmm. Not trying to solve their problems, but just saying, you are not alone. And I think, you know, I think there's a suffering in suffering sometimes. It's Mm -hmm. the suffering of feeling cut off. It's Mm -hmm. the suffering of feeling isolated. You know, and I think um, we have a, we built a culture of isolation. I mean, we know today from a lot of the news that depression is on the rise. People are lonelier than ever, even though we live in a completely networked world, a wired Mm -hmm. world. How is that possible that we can be more wired than ever before in human history and lonelier than ever before Mm -hmm. as well? So there's something that we've lost in this quest for greater power and communication. And I think we've lost the heart, You know, the place of the heart, that expansive center within us that is the place that makes us person that's where personhood is rooted like a tree you know those are our roots are in the heart Hmm. Um, and uh you know and those roots then open up to the mind the ability to be aware of what we are and you know how we're part of this whole and then how we experience life in that in this whole uh, and where love you know comes in but I do think that love, you know, Teilhard thought that love alone can bring us to another universe. And Mm -hmm. I think if, you know, if I had to say what would be one way that we can all come together, um, Hindus and Christians and Buddhists and Jews and Muslims and atheists and all peoples, all peoples um, that, you know, on this planet are seeking the moreness of life think the one thing that speaks to every person is love. No matter who you are, where you live on this planet, every person wants to love, has the capacity to love, and seeks to be loved. It's the it's the language of our um, common existence. And I think it's our future together.
0: Yeah. Totally agree. That's part of our, our new language for the future we are talking here about it's not just merely finding new words, but finding who we are in love and what's the potential for that in, in our connections with with everything and with everyone. So going back for a minute to the idea of evolution, Ilya, I'm thinking, I think you quoted in some of your books something from from Whitehead. He will <laughs> say something like, evolution occurs because God is more interested in adventure than in preserving the status quo. Yes. I, I, I love that quote. I love that quote because I couldn't but think, again, Going, I cannot avoid the interfaith dialogue over and over again because yeah. I, I have to go to the, our Sanskrit notion of lila. Lila means play. I've yes, heard that. No? Yes. play. So for us, ultimately, God is playing. No? I mean, he's I completely that. absorbed in self-forgetfulness and divine love and absorbed in play. And even we have a theological point where we mention that God becomes so engrossed in the play of love that he forgets that he's God.
2: No? i love that idea. yeah, yeah.
0: he still is god but he forgets yeah. like if you're the president of the country and you go to your house and your grandson jumps on you and starts to play you <laughs> forgot you forgot you are the president at that moment
2: I you are, agree.
0: your main sense of identity I, I am my grandchild's grandpa you are <laughs> still the president but you forgot so somehow we make that parallel and when god becomes so much engrossed in love in adventure in the adventure of loving whitehead's term uh he enters into what we call lila, which is more like a celebratory movement, a dance, yes. a participatory experience. And the, the, the designation of God becomes God comes to the background, and the main designation is who he is in loving connection with each one of his yes. lovers, so to say.
1: Beautiful. Yeah, I, I absolutely love that I, I met Swami. I came across the term lila a number of years ago, and I was really fascinated by this notion of divine play. Or play the playfulness of god mm-hmm. and i think honestly i had to do you know concentrate on one thing it would be kind of converting western theology out of its static metaphysics of like god is some divine being or mm. some big guy in the sky idea you know some male guy in the sky idea
2: mm-hmm. uh,
1: watching over us from afar and i'm like oh my god that is so not god that is <laughs> that i'm that that's more like the wizard of oz or something but um but god is love and love as you say um and uh the 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 dynamism of love the Mm -hmm. the relationality of love god goes out goes out of god to be god with us you know and and Mm -hmm. that's the beauty um that you know we're in this play and i love the idea of play by the way i was talking Mm -hmm. yesterday with my students because Robert Bella, in his book on religion and human evolution, speaks about play in early, early um, hominid species as actually the basis of religion itself. Because play is the basis of sociality. It's the basis of coming together for shared being and shared existence.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. So play, play means, you know, there's an intention to be with another, to to. To share this, you know, this activity of life, this adventure of life with another, which is, I think, what God is about, mm. um, and, and therefore, in that intention, you need to be attentive to what you're doing to be part of the of the playfulness. Um, mm. So, you know, Whitehead uh, had a notion that creativity is the fundamental principle of the universe, not God. So, mm. God is the first, um, the highest exemplar of creativity. God hmm. is that which is who's most creative, but creativity itself actually surpasses God for, for white hmm. men, which is really interesting because love, you know, I think the purity of love is really creative. It's it's constantly bringing into being. The lover is the poet, the artist, um, the one driven by passion, you know, by desire for the moreness, uh, hmm. for beauty. Uh, and so, um so I love the idea of the playfulness, the adventure of divinity, you know, in, with us, like, you know, like you say, God becomes in a sense, as Eckhart would say, God becomes not God, you know, get it, get the God out of the sky. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, because that God is in playfully in relationship with, you know, calling us into, into ever greater um, circles of love, you know. Yeah.
0: Eckhart I- was the one who said, God, rid me of God, right?
1: Pray God to rid
0: me of God. Yeah, yeah, totally agree with the idea of in order to know him, we have first yes. to un- un- know him and-, and get rid of so many, even unresolved father, unresolved childhood trauma, father yes. projection or whatever dogma we have received or processed or unprocessed and, and be willing to rediscover Constantly, God—not only just one day today after our podcast, yeah. but on a daily basis, basically.
1: I agree, Swami because I think actually, I think if we think that God is like the big guy in the sky, you know, who's going to take care of us, we actually pre- we we kind of um, we don't take the responsibility then for our own lives. We, we think, mm-hmm. well, God will do it for me. You know, mm-hmm. I'm going to pray, obey, and you know, God will take care of us. And uh, that's really, that's actually to the detriment of ourselves and the whole world order. Um, It's just the opposite. God becomes not God to be that power of God, you know, of love within us to say, Mm -hmm. look, you have a choice to make, you know, do do you want to become that radical person that that endless depth of love that can be that could be turned into fire, you know, that can transform and purify and change what is. You know what is ugly into the beautiful, Uh, you can you can be part of that, (laughs) and therefore I think I think a sky god actually uh, takes away uh, responsibility. We have to be responsible radical persons. We have to (laughs) we have to take um, we have to make the choice to be a radical person. You know, it's not a given.
0: You are taking my audience quite far off their comfort zone, Ilya. Thank you so much oh, for that. Sorry. I, no, 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 no. I, I'm congratulating that i mentioned making the official mention of that. So that's official blessing today. Because again, I, I, inside of a comfort zone, there is no way to to ever evolve in connection to God. So I appreciate your point of the willingness to to, to rediscover God and how He's to be found in the playfulness and creativity of love. And in our tradition, even we have a personified expression of divine love and it's a female divinity, so to say, which is God in a female way called Radha. Mm -hmm. And and Radha has loving interaction with Krishna, which will be the male side of the divinity. Mm -hmm. And generally our tradition, Radha is given a higher position, so to say, that God himself, It goes again with hand by hand with what Whitehead men say regarding creativity First, so uh, love love being the one who rules everyone's life, including God's and he himself is subservient to love. In our tradition, actually, the goal of life is 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 divine love. It's not God. We we always always make the point. Our goal of life is not God, is love, love for God and and God's own life. God has also his goal in life, which is also divine love. No, I mean, I like both God right. and us share the same goal in life. Sorry, Sorry Leah, what?
1: I, lo- I said I might be Hindu. I'm not sure. I think <laughs> but I totally agree everything. Well,
0: many times I hear you and I say I must be Christian. So we are <laughs> we are on the same page in that connection.
1: Yeah,
2: that's really it's- beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: For me, that's an, an a really reconciling idea. The same thing that is the goal of life for us is the goal of life for God because that thing that is the goal, which is love, again, is ever evolving, ever unfolding. So you can never fully Grasp and capture, okay. I got my goal of life. It's you can, it's always two steps ahead, so to say.
1: Yeah, I use I put it in this way every end is a new beginning, and every arrival, a new departure. It's always a becoming in love, you know. The other thing I was thinking about though, as you were talking, Swami, is that you know, this um, the, the flow into the ever deeper um ocean of love really always requires us to live in terms of evolution. Um, To live a sort of, uh, you know, a little chaos can go a long way. I put Uh it this way. Uh We're always looking for stability, but love always lives on the edge of the future, right? Uh When you live in love, you're always looking towards what is to come together, you know, Uh Um, the the, the not yet. And uh, I think, you know, one theory from science that I've been influenced by is that from chaos theory. Chaos Mm -hmm. theory is uh, living in that openness, that open system of order within disorder. Yeah, order is always kind of temporary. It's what fluctuates in this moment for the ongoing livability of life. But, you know, if we're attentive, there's always kind of a strange attractor somehow forming, you know, a a new basin of attraction that's pulling us in a Mm. new direction. Uh, and uh, a, a chaos theory says, you know, over time, strange attractors take on a greater gravity of power um, within the system. And it can pull the system into a whole new order. And I think that love works that way. If we really are attentive to divine love within us, it's like a strange attractor. And then if we allow ourselves to be pulled into that new pattern of life that love is offering to us, we can, over time, become a new a new type of person, a new being. And that's what I think evolution's about. It's the emergence of new patterns of order, mm. newness of being, driven by, you might say, the openness of life to more life.
0: Yeah. But for that, I think we will need to redefine, not redefine, but reconceive words like chaos, because people hear chaos and say, no, no, thank you, I don't want that. Yes. Instead of, of translating chaos, as you mentioned, as openness, potential, Possibility, all of which are deeply tied to the idea of love. So, we, exactly.
2: we,
0: in other words, you have you want love, but you don't want chaos. Means you don't want love actually, or you <laughs> don't understand what love is about. And, and yeah, in fact, I, I dedicated one part of a chapter in my book to speak about chaos and order and the importance of balancing both. Of course, we are not promoting here just sheer chaos, hundred percent. No, but too much order can be also suffocating, and it can lead to let's say, in potential, too much order is a totalitarian regime yes. or di- dictatorship. Everything is in order, in place, no unpredictability, and it can be hell in a in, yes. in no way.
1: Yes, I agree. And I think the type of uh, mm-hmm. chaos you're talking about there, the kind that seems completely disruptive, chaos in a closed system, you know, chaos where everything uh, this total disorder but it's bounded the system is bounded and there's nowhere for so everything kind of begins to break down mm. but an open system is a permeable system and yeah. i think you know that's what we mean that there's an openness to the environment so life, life is messy i mean we don't have to you know <laughs> you don't have to spend too much time dwelling on that one because it's always uh, because life is unfinished in t- terms of evolution we mm. live in an unfinished universe we are unfinished right. persons. We're not finished mm. persons who haven't gotten it, you know, who failed. We're unfinished and we're in the process of becoming. Hmm. And that's why to live as an open system is to live within the unfinishedness of life that is moving towards, you know, a type of completion.
2: Yeah. Um, yeah, it gives
1: exactly. us a whole new, you know, you might say a ticket to um, be okay with the fact that things don't work out sometimes or that life breaks down something new is always on the horizon.
0: If yeah, to it. yeah. And that reminds me, one of my teachers, Srila Siddharth will say, the closer you get to the infinite, the more you will realize there is no limit to perfection, there is no limit to progress in connection to your notion of unfinishedness. Yes. The closer you get to the infinite, you realize there is infinite potential for progress, so you can t- just touch one point in an infinite line, but you can never capture it all. And I think that, that, for many of us, it's a little bit terrifying in the sense that many of us are are not accustomed to deal with what we don't know, with the unknown. And when we even speak about potential, who we are in, in our becoming, in our potential, we could say, of course, we have we have a pretty dark potential. We have a potential to go to very dark places, for sure. We, we know that. But also, we have the potential to go to beautiful, bright places. But... Just because our brightest potential is unknown to us, we may be terrified about that. Just because we don't know. Whatever we don't know, generally, we are terrified of, even if it's our brightest potential.
1: Yes. No, that's absolutely true. And I think that terror of the unknown is the fear of nothingness. I mean, because here we have something. You know, we have our own existence. We have our lives. Maybe they're not the best of what we would hope for, but... Here they are, and and we know we're comfortable enough. But being called into the unknown, that dark, that future of darkness. But that's where I think, faith. do we really have trust in a divine power of love? I think, do we have faith? You know, faith is that there's no logic, there's no reasoning, but there's an ascent that I believe, you know, that this power of love will not let me go. And that that this power of love, whatever it brings me into into the future will be there for me and will be ever more if I open myself up to it. Because you're right. We live uh, between, you know, um, some writers say we we live between animal and angel. If we look at the scale of evolution, Mm -hmm. you know, in terms of biological evolution, Mm -hmm. we're emerging out of a long trajectory of biological life. That Mm -hmm. is very, very messy, I might add, you know, so fantastic in terms of biological life. We've had. Five major extinctions on earth Hmm. some say that we're in the sixth extinction in terms of cosmic life we've had major cataclysmic events i mean asteroid collisions and this type thing and yet here we are isn't that fantastic after 13.8 billion years here we are you know even on earth 3.2 whatever it is 4 billion years of, of life on earth here we are after massive massive destructions After what seems to be a total wipeout of life. And yet we're here to talk about love and the future. That to me is so fantastic that no scientific principle could ever really approach. And there's something about the infinite that's already in our midst. And as you say, we can never really grasp it. We're not meant to grasp the infinite. It is, in a sense, the light that pulls us ever more onto the fullness of life. that wholeness of life, um, that fecundity, like the flowering of life. Mm -hmm. I think for our Christian language, the term heaven, you know, points to. But I also think that's not an other world, that this earth, this planet actually has that potential. And I think oftentimes we have so underestimated the power of life on this planet for the moreness of life. And it's one thing, my hope, my greatest hope, is that we can bring our spiritual energies together in the power of love to to evoke, to bring out what we have the
0: capacity for. Hmm. Thank you, beautiful. And, and, and I agree that we have to, all this capacity and all this beautiful potential that is just knocking at our door here and now, not in a future time in a far distant land. Uh, in many ways, it's impossible to fully grasp and we have to be okay with, coexisting with that mystery that that's a way for me to define faith like having patience with mystery and patience is being waiting while trusting and I, yes, like, yes. I, I always recall when father richard will say the opposite of faith is certainty <laughs> mm-hmm. like making this point that we have to coexist with uncertainty and, and, and in that way be retain and, and recover if you will this spirit of awe an astonishment that so much characterizes the the vision of the enlightened one the childlike mentality or like in buddhism they will say the shoshin the beginner's mind in our own tradition our teacher will say we are students forever and and in this connection i would like to wrap up we are getting closer to our conclusion with one topic that also i know you are very expert in sharing with us which is technology Uh, and we are talking about the new language for the future and, and since we are talking here about the importance to coexist with mystery and paradox, I, I connect this with technology in the sense that one of the main issues for me, and of course there may be so many, but is that technology is such an incredible thing. I'm, I mean, we are doing this conversation I'm surrounded by technology here, although you cannot see almost any of that. <laughs> and, and I don't have a, 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 the minimum clue of how this is constructed, what's what's invested behind this. So the point is, For me, it's a very delicate danger that we get accustomed to the extraordinariness of technology and we lose sight of the wonder that is behind that. We have in our pockets a cell phone, which is extraordinary in itself in many ways, but we get accustomed to that and even demand upgraded versions of it and so on. So for me, that's one of the most delicate things to navigate. So much extraordinariness, but so quickly getting accustomed to that. Yes. And, and losing awe and astonishment, which for us in our tradition, we say Rasa Sar which means astonishment is the juice of life. Yeah, so I, I don't know what, do, what you can share I in that connection. <laughs> sorry, sorry, I, I didn't hear. Yeah,
1: I have a lot to say about this. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yes, bless us.
1: Um, I'm actually teaching a course right now on technology and human evolution. So uh, this comes at a timely uh, point. Um, technology, you know, Uh, One thing I want to just say is that nature has always been techne. So, you Mm -hmm. know, it's not that humans are technological, it's that nature is technological. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, clams have uh, little clamshells and, you know, beavers build dams and life has always harnessed the materials in its environment to optimize life. So one thing I think about technology is life seeks more life, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and therefore techne are the tools that are useful the optimization of life but life is also you know nature itself is also pluripotential it can be it can be mastered into or turned into something which is something what poetry does you know it evokes um Mm -hmm. power or the potential within something to be something more Mm. so i think technology is emerging out of human personhood and quite honestly i think computer technology actually emerged in the 20th century the midst of the 20th century in the midst of a very, very violent century, um, mm-hmm. a century of profound war and suffering and death, and I think one of the things it uh, was was, you know, can we find a way out of ourselves? Like, you know, <laughs> you know, there's something about us that it has become so, um, so thwarted and turned in to become destructive, so utterly destructive. And so this idea of extending the mind into a machine you know, was first an experiment by Alan Turing, and later now turned into a whole, you know, productivity of devices and and corporations. Now, technology is both good and not so good, but it's fantastic. Look what it can do. Here we are, Sweden and Pennsylvania, brought together in a single conversation. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. It's incredibly creative, it's incredibly imaginative, and it goes to show we have the power to do new things. We mm-hmm. have the power to imagine something, to create it, and then to bring it into existence. That is a human power, uh, distinct from the animal world. And therefore, we have to wonder well, what do we want with this power of mm. being able to create technology? Unfortunately, I think a lot of technology, especially like movements of uh, radical transhumanism, you know, want to become gods. You know, there's a, mm. a sense of uh, God is the problem, not the solution. You know, and here I think they're talking about the Judeo-Christian tradition God, um, the, the big guy in the sky God, saying basically uh, religion has failed and technology will fulfill what religion promises. So technology now can bring about our happiness. We can save ourselves. We can live on. You know, we can download our brains. We can live on forever, you know, mm-hmm. mortality and, and uh, you know, all these ideas. The one downside is that we're so preoccupied with what technology can do for us. As you say, we've lost the sense of wonder. So a lot of kids, Gen Zs, um, you know, they're on their phones. So we have the exoskeletal life. My phone is who, part of who I am. So I live my life. You know, if you take my phone away, you take my soul away, basically. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, this is a problem because we're, we're losing the capacity for interiority. The ability to be at home with ourselves, to be in silence and not constantly inundated by information. We are um, enamored by the fact that technology can do something more for us. Now we have Chat GPT, you know, so I don't have to think about writing an essay. I can just go to Chat GPT 4. So we're exporting our minds um, onto our devices this actually will have negative consequences. We're actually thinning out the whole frontal cortex of the brain. So the brain is changing um, as we speak using a technology. And part of the reason, you know, and here I'm going to put a little bit of the burden on religions that have been too passive in the whole discussion of technology and its development. Um, I do think we have sort of taken a laissez-faire attitude and we've let corporations sort of, monitor where technology is going to take us, but we're heading for a very strange future. Mm. I think we need to engage in the question, what do we want with technology? And what does religion offer that technology cannot? What is so valuable and, and what is um, infinitely valuable about the human person and mm. the radical personalism mm. that technology cannot address, it cannot attain? Um, mm-hmm. Tara Chardin basically thought technology Is fantastic. It can unify us. It can help create a more planetized consciousness around the globe. But without love, it can lead into a a disastrous future. Um, I just saw the movie Oppenheimer, you know, where technology, you know, yeah, fantastic on one hand, and then the utter destructive power it potentially has on the other hand.
0: Hmm. So, Hmm. yeah. Interesting that you quoted the movie, which I was thinking also about watching. Because Oppenheimer, when he the the, the bomb was tested, he actually quoted a verse from the Bhagavad Gita. Mm. You didn't, you did know that, but of course the Bhagavad Gita is not promoting the creation of nuclear atomic bombs. <laughs> but,
2: yes, but
0: somehow that. he he related that to that, and and that also shows me the other way around. You can use a sacred text as an atomic bomb, or you can use technology, so to say, uh, as, a, as something sacred. No? So both things have, have this potential. And and I was thinking about that, as you mentioned, as technology advances. We need to advance internally to to, to be on, on the same level with technology because if technology advances to the point of even offering us some, some level of emotional feedback, if you will, in some way or another, if we are not upgrading our humanity to understand that, that technology will never be able to provide us actual love, as you mentioned. Uh, Technology will offer us some sense of flat humanity, so to say, and and that will be enough for us because we will be quite flat ourselves and we won't be able at one point to distinguish between what the robot can offer us in terms of feedback and relationality and, and, and what a human can offer. At one point, everything will be totally blurred and it will be the same,
1: that's absolutely correct, Swami. In fact, what's predicted mm. is that by, Ray Kurzweil says by 2045, we'll have so merged with our technologies, we'll have exited our species homo sapiens and we'll be an entirely new species, techno sapiens. Mm. Mm. And the question is, do we want that kind of future? Do we want to exit? Do, do we want to go past our humanity into some kind of robotically driven or technologically mediated existence? <laughs> Um, hmm. We have to engage that question seriously. And religions have to step up and say there's something there, there's a spiritual dimension to us that cannot be supplanted or replaced by it by a technological device. And we need to we need to spill that out what this means for our existence, for our planetary existence, for our life together.
0: Hmm. Yeah. So I think that the role of spiritual traditions is more crucial than ever in connection to what technologies offering us potential in both directions, so to say. So we have big responsibility. Ilya, we are getting to our close. I don't know if you would like to share any concluding thoughts, anything you may like to share before we wrap up regarding today's topic, what we have been sharing.
1: Thank you, Swami. I mean, first of all, I so appreciate your work and um, for opening up the Hindu uh, tradition to me, the spirituality of Hinduism and It's so beautiful, really. I just, I really want to learn more about it. Um, And just to find out, you know, uh, my teacher, um, your cousins used to say, we look like we're separate, but in our roots, we're really part of the same cosmic wholeness. And I think, you know, I think as we trace these traditions down to our root reality, it is love that binds us together, you know, and we are one in that heart of divine love. So my prayer and my hope is that we can continue to, Share, um, you know, the fruits of uh, what we're coming from to work together towards a new reality of love. That love itself can is much more powerful than any technological device. Uh, and I think if we can maybe harness that power of love for the future of our planetary existence together, then um, we may not need our cell phones in the future.
0: Yeah, love will be the ultimate technology. <laughs> Thank you so much, Ilya. I will share one more time before we conclude the contact. For those who would like to know more about her work, you can visit Christogenesis.org. And also she has her podcast called Hunger for Wholeness. So thank you so much, Ilya, for coming. And we will meet each other with all of you next Saturday at 10 a.m. EDT time. This time I will be having as my guest Rory McEntee. This whole month of September, I will be inviting different practitioners from other traditions, other quote-unquote. As you can see, Ilya is a Hindu and I'm a Christian, basically, as we can see. So we'll be talking with Rory McEntee, the co-author of a book called The New Monasticism. And the title of our podcast will be The New Monasticism. So we will continue our conversation of a new language for the future, new monasticism, so on and so forth. So thanks so much to all being present. Thanks so much, Ilya, for being with us. A great blessing. And see you all very soon. Thank you so much.
1: Blessings.